Good morning. It's always a blessing to be able to be here with you and to be able to open up God's Word together. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And our passage is going to be verses 3 through 14. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, that could be found on page 1389. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And that's on page 1389. Now, as you make your way to the text this morning, I want to start out by uh, giving a bit of an introduction. Uh, what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be exploring the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Jesus Christ. If we were to look at verse 3, we see that it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what exactly are these spiritual blessings? What does it mean to be blessed spiritually? My hope today is that as we go through the text in Ephesians, we'll find answers to those questions. And I will admit that even though this passage is only 12 verses this morning, it's, it's so deep and rich that we could spend the rest of our lives exploring this text and not fully comprehend all of the riches and the blessings that we have been given in Christ. But my hope this morning is that you'll get but a taste, that we'll be able to see but a glimpse of what we have been given as sons and daughters of the living God through our union with Christ. So we read our text together this morning. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of this grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O God. We thank you to the praise of your glory that we may gather together as your people this morning, that we can sit under the ministry of your word, that we could praise you with song, that we can pray. Lord, I just pray also that you would send your spirit this morning, that you would fill this place with your glory, that we might comprehend the fullness of all the riches that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Lord, unless your spirit comes to minister to, this to us this morning, uh, unless your spirit comes and changes hearts and minds, there is no power. Uh, there's no power in these words. They are just merely words unless your spirit comes. So I pray, Lord, that you would come and give life to these words this morning, that you would bless your people in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So what does it mean to be blessed spiritually? What does it mean to be blessed? What does that word blessed actually mean? 
It can mean a few different things. If it can mean a, a state of being happy. It can mean a, a state of enjoying happiness, that we're enjoying being happy. But specifically, what it means, I think, in this text is it talks about the goodness that God is working through his people, the good that God is doing to his people. So the question I have for you this morning is this. If we know that God is working good in our lives, if we know that we are blessed, if we know that we're meant to enjoy the state of happiness in Christ, why is it so often that we struggle to feel blessed in our lives? Why do we struggle with that? See, there's this phenomenon in the uh, animal kingdom, in the animal world, it's called imprinting. And basically what that means is some animals, in particular ducks, what happens is they attach themselves to the first things that they see when they're born. And what happens is, after a while, they, they come to think that they are these things. And what happens is, in particular with ducks, is they hatch out of their eggs, and, and uh, the first thing that they see is that the duck's mother, once in a while that backfires, uh, I read of an example recently of a story of a, a duckling that hatched under the watchful eye of a collie, which is a dog. Um, and what happened was the, the, baby the, baby the duck took one look at the dog and thought that it was its mother. So it followed the collie around. It ran to it for protection. It slept with it at night. It spent the hot part of the day under the uh, porch uh, taking shelter from the sun. Uh, when a car pulled into the driveway, the, the duck would run out along with the dog, quacking and pecking at the tires. And as Christians, we often experience a similar confusion in identity. We too often become products of the world around us, products of our environment. We end up acting like the fallen world that's in front of us rather than acting like who we are in Christ. And the problem is, like the duck... We don't see ourselves correctly. We act like the things that are in front of us rather than who we really are. And because of this, we struggle to live in a manner that's consistent with our Savior. When we least expect it, a car pulls into the driveway of our lives and we explode from underneath the porch, quacking viciously and pecking at the tires. So why do we do this? We do this because we've lost sight of who we are in Jesus Christ. We look at our circumstances sometimes and we don't realize that we're blessed. We don't realize it because we don't feel like we're blessed. We're tempted to live according to our feelings rather than living according to the truth. We sympathize with Asaph when he writes in Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that tends to be true of us today also. We, we look at the world around us and it would seem like the wicked are prospering. And if we linger too long, what happens is our affections are drawn away from God and they're drawn towards something else. They're drawn towards whatever is in front of us. And what happens is in that moment, whatever that thing is that is drawing our affections away from God is more real to us in that moment than the blessings that we've been given in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why, that's why we sin. We tend to look at our circumstances and we're not satisfied. We feel like something's missing. 
We feel like somehow we're lacking the things that we need. And what happens is we look to other things. We look to things other than God to meet those needs. We look to things other than God to satisfy us. But if you're a Christian, what I want you to realize this morning, we've been given everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us clearly in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we've been given every spiritual blessing that we need in order to live lives worthy of our calling. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So according to this verse, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And we've been blessed with these in Christ. Now the word every there, it simply means any or all or whole. The point that Paul is making is we don't lack any spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. We're not lacking anything. But the fact is that these blessings are spiritual blessings. They're supernatural blessings. They're not carnal. They're not worldly They're not fleshly blessings, but spiritual blessings. They're of the Spirit. And according to Ephesians, where these blessings are found is in Jesus Christ. And you see, the reason we don't see these blessings clearly sometimes is because we're looking at our earthly circumstances rather than looking at our Savior. And that's where these blessings are found. They're in Christ In fact, if we do a quick survey of the text, we see that Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him or through Jesus Christ a total of 12 times. I think he's trying to tell us something. So we've already looked at verse 3. Let's move quickly to verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. That's Jesus Christ, the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, verse 12, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What Paul's making clear in this passage is that we are partakers in the divine blessing by virtue of our union to Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ. So what exactly are these spiritual blessings? Just to make sure we don't understand what he means, Paul spells them out for us. He tells us exactly what these blessings are. For example, we see that we have been chosen by the Father and adopted as sons. That's blessing number one. Chosen by the Father, adopted as sons. We've been redeemed by the Son and forgiven our trespasses. Trespasses. That's blessing number two. 
redeemed by the Son, forgiven our trespasses. We've been sealed by the Spirit and guaranteed an inheritance. That's blessing number three. So chosen by the Father and adopted as sons, redeemed by the Son and forgiven our trespasses. And finally, we see that we've been sealed by the Spirit and guaranteed an inheritance. These are the spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ according to these verses from Ephesians. So let's take a look at the first blessing. We've been chosen by the Father and adopted as sons. Take a look at me, uh, with me at verse number four. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what does it mean exactly that he chose us? What does that mean to be chosen? The word here, to choose, simply means to select, to decide on, especially by a vote, to have preference for. When I think of the word chosen, I, it reminds me of a couple of years ago when we adopted our dog. We uh, went to a rescue. Uh, she's a rescue dog. And one day, my wife and kids, they got in the car. They drove over to the, over to the animal rescue and, and picked out a dog. And when we got there, there were all kinds of these different dogs to choose from. There were big dogs. There were small dogs. There were fluffy dogs. There were furry dogs. Dogs with floppy ears. Dogs with pointy ears. There were shy dogs. Friendly dogs. And out of all of these dogs, the one that they chose was our dog, Sammy. And once we chose her, she just wasn't some dog from the rescue anymore. She was ours. She belonged to us. She was special to us. She became part of the family. And when we chose her, it wasn't because of anything in particular about her. It wasn't like she was especially well-behaved. It wasn't like she was overly friendly. It's not like she was cuter than the other dogs or smarter than the other dogs. We chose her simply because she's the one that we wanted. And we're going to talk about adoption in a little while, but I just wanted you to have a picture in your mind of what we mean when the Bible speaks about being chosen. And the important thing I want you to see here is not simply that we were chosen, but when. Look with me again at verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Before the foundation of the world. That means before God ever created the heavens and the earth. Before he created our first parents and set them in the garden. Before they were tempted by Satan and disobeyed their creator and plunged the world into sin. Before Jesus came into the world and led a sinless life. Before he died on a Roman cross and rose again to save his people from their sins. Before all of this, God chose us. Now I want you to think about how incredible that is for a moment. And I want to tell you why it's so incredible. Before sin ever entered the world, he knew that he would have to save us from it. Before Adam and Eve ever disobeyed God, he knew that his son would have to take on human flesh and die to save his people from those consequences. Really think about that. Think about that for a moment. Did God know that Adam would eat of the tree and plunge the entire human race into sin? Of course he knew. Did he know that he would have to send his son into the world and his son would have to die a horrific death to save his people? Did he know this? Of course he did. And in spite of this, he chose to create us anyway. Think about how astounding that is. 
Because I can tell you, if it were me, if I, if I knew that these creatures that I created would turn and destroy everything else that I created and that I would have to shed my own blood to save them, I might say, why bother? But praise God, he doesn't think like me. Let's also consider a few verses from the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read them for you. It says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the fa- before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It says also in chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Finally, chapter 20, verse 15, which says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, one day we will all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says in these verses that if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they will be thrown into hell where they will face the wrath of God for eternity. Now, when were these names written in the book? Before the foundation of the world. Think about how, uh, how astounding that is. Think about how astounding that is. And why did he do this? Look again with me at the second half of verse 4. It says that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, God's purpose in choosing us is that we would be made holy. That in Christ, we would be sanctified. It's in Christ that we're made holy. It's in Christ that we are made blameless. Now, we're talking about a term called sanctification, and and sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. And that's something that happens both immediately, but it's also progressive. It happens throughout our lives. It happens in an instant when we are converted, when we come to Christ But it also happens as we live our lives every single day. What's amazing about this is that in the sight of God, at this very moment, we are holy and blameless in his sight. Why is that? Because we are in Christ. We are united to his son. You see, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as sinful creatures, even though we are. He sees us as holy and blameless. Why is that? Because we are united to Christ. We are clothed in his perfect righteousness. God sees us in Christ. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What that's referring to is something called the doctrine of imputation. Uh, we also call it uh, the great exchange because what we've done is we've exchanged our sin for Christ's righteousness. When we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we are given his righteousness and he has taken our sin upon us. I want you to think of a whiteboard. And on that whiteboard are written all the sins that you've ever committed, all the sins that you'll ever commit, both past, present, future, The fact that we are by nature children of wrath, that we are sinful creatures in Adam, it's all written on that whiteboard. And when we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, our sins are forgiven. It's like that whiteboard. Everything is erased from the whiteboard. 
Now that by itself is good news. Would you guys agree? It's good news. It gets even better. Because if it simply means that the whiteboard is erased, that means we'd have a clean slate, which is good. But then what would we need to do? We read earlier in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, that the dead would be judged according to what they had done. So what that means is if we simply had a clean slate, we would have to fill that up with good works, with perfect obedience. And there's only one man who ever obeyed God perfectly, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come to him, when he redeems us, when he forgives our sins, not only are all of our sins erased from the whiteboard, but our whiteboard is filled up with all of the holy, righteous, good deeds of Jesus Christ himself. So his perfect, spotless, sinless life is given to us as if we lived that life. It's as if we obeyed God perfectly. So on that day when we stand before the judgment seat of God and the books are opened, it's as if we live the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. That's good news. For those of us in Christ, it is truly finished. So we've been given a righteousness that's not our own. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from somewhere outside of us. And it's not because of anything good that we've done. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we've done anything to earn it. It's simply because we've been chosen by the Father to the praise of his glorious grace. And not only in Christ are we positionally holy, that, that's what it means, we are positionally holy at this very moment, but we're enabled by the Spirit to walk in holiness. Our sanctification is also progressive. It's a process. It's a process that began at our conversion and continues for the rest of our lives this side of glory. Now there's something else I want us to see here. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. They say this, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, there probably isn't a word in all of Christendom that causes more angst, that offends the sensitivities of some than the word predestination. So what does it mean when the Bible talks about predestination? Here's how the word is meant, biblically speaking. It means to limit in advance, to predetermine, to determine beforehand, to ordain. And according to this passage in Ephesians and other places in the Bible, it says that God predestines us for salvation. And what that means is he limits in advance, he predetermines, he determines beforehand, and he ordains people to salvation. I want you to think of Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30, very familiar verses to many of us. They say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And our verses in Ephesians says that he predestined us for adoption as sons. And the way that we're adopted is through salvation. See, adoption is the act by God by which he makes those whom he saved members of his family with all of the privileges and obligations that come with being part of that family. 
And when he says adoptions as sons, he's obviously, he obviously means both men and women. It's not just men, not, not literal sons. I like the way the King James actually puts it. It says this, having predestinated us unto adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's adoption. We're made members of God's family through our union with his son. Now, the Lord has blessed my wife and I with three uh, sons of our own. All three of them, despite the running joke in my, my family that my youngest is adopted. He's uh, the only one with blonde hair and blue eyes. So he insists that he's adopted, even though he's not. Um, they're all natural children of ours, which means they all have the rights, they have the privileges, they have the obligation that comes along with being sons. Now, if we were to actually adopt a child and make that child part of our family, that child would have all the same rights, all the same privileges, they'd have all the same love that our three natural sons have. And that's what, exactly what we have as the adopted children of God. We're in union with the Son whom he loves, and we're lavished with all the love and affection that the Son of God himself receives from the Father. Think about how astounding that is. Think about what an incredible blessing that is. Now, I want you to think of that blessing the next time that you're struggling with feelings of acceptance. I know that's something all of us struggle with at one time in our lives or another. For example, maybe you're at work one day and and one of your, your coworkers starts to make a crude joke. And all of a sudden, everybody else in the office is starting to join in. And before you know it, um, they're all kind of partaking in this, this crudeness, everyone except for you. You start to think to yourself, you know, I, I know it would be wrong for me to join in with them, but I'm really starting to get uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's starting to feel really uneasy. Maybe you're thinking pretty soon they're going to start wondering why I'm not getting involved, why I'm staying out of it. You start thinking, maybe they're going to start to try to goad me, or maybe they'll start to make fun of me. And before you know it, more often than not, we fall right into the middle of that. Now, why did that happen? It's because you want to be accepted. We want to be accepted. We want our coworkers to approve of us. We, like, we want them to like us and not treat us like an outcast. You see, in that moment, being accepted and approved of by your coworkers is more real than the spiritual blessings that you've been given in Christ in that moment. And that can apply to a lot of different situations. It, it doesn't just have to be a coworker at work. It could be uh, our friends at school. It could be members of our family at a family gathering. The point is, as fallen creatures living in a fallen world, we crave acceptance and approval. And when we don't get it, it causes us to despair. We feel bad. You see, and in that moment, we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that in Christ, we've been chosen by the Father and adopted as sons. That means the creator of the universe himself has already accepted and approved of us just because of the fact that we're united to his beloved son. And in choosing us, God didn't sign up to be a foster parent. We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. You see, if one of my sons disobeys, what happens? He gets disciplined. He doesn't get kicked out of the family. Why? Because he's my son. His behavior doesn't change that. It's the same way as members of God's family. In the same way, if you're a Christian, God didn't choose you because of anything you've done. 
He didn't choose you on the basis of who you are, but on the basis of his son. You were chosen in Christ. And when we understand these things, when we really lay hold of them, when we understand that God loves us uh, because of nothing we've done, when we realize that God's choosing us is unmerited, it's, it's unconditional, we understand that it, it, when we understand that it's unearned, it should fill us with a deep sense of gratitude and humility. Beloved, if we really understood this, it would cause us to worship our God in humility and thankful service. And this is his will. Look again with me at the second half of verse 5. It says that he adopted us according to the purpose of his will. And what is the purpose of his will exactly? Well, the second half of verse 4, it says that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So that's the spiritual, first spiritual blessing. That's spiritual blessing number one. We've been chosen by the Father and adopted as sons. And that adoption is secured by Christ who signed our adoption papers in his blood. Think about that. And that brings us to our next spiritual blessing. It says we've been redeemed by the Son and forgiven our trespasses. Take a look at me, with me at verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So the first thing that we see here is that we've been redeemed. So what does it mean to be redeemed? What does that mean? The idea of redemption is that it means that something that has gone wrong has been made right. Something that's gone wrong has been made right. So what's gone wrong? Our sin. Both our, both our personal sin and the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. You see, sin has taken away the righteousness that God intended our lives to reflect, and it holds us in bondage. We're held hostage to Satan's purposes in sin. Now, we know these truths well, but they bear repeating. See, we who were created in God's image, we were created holy and privileged, created to reflect the image of God to the rest of creation, through the fall of our first parents, became slaves to sin, bound to its penalties forever. And apart from Christ, we would perpetually exist in a prison of guilt and shame that we can't escape from, at least not by our own efforts, not by our good deeds, because our good deeds are also tainted by sin. You see, we need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We need to be released from slavery and freed from bondage. And that freedom came at a price. It came at a price of the sacrifice of God's own son. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, or very familiar verses. They say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. The Apostle Peter writes something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1, 17 through 19. It says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without a blemish or spot. 
You see, it's the blood of Christ that satisfies the wrath of God. It's the blood of Christ that redeems us and rescues us from captivity. It's the blood of Christ that also secures our forgiveness. So not only have we been freed from the bondages of sin, which is redemption, we're also freed from the penalty of that sin, which is due us. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven of the penalty that is due. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the wages that our sin earned is death. That's the penalty we deserve. But we learn that along with forgiveness comes the payment of that penalty by the very Son of God himself. He gave up his life for us that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And how is this done? Look with me at verse 8. It says, According to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, when we understand the depth of our need, when we understand the depth and the, the horror of sin, when we understand that the price to be paid for our redemption and forgiveness, we catch a glimpse of the riches of God's grace. Do we deserve to be chosen and adopted as sons? No. Do we deserve to redeem, be redeemed and forgiven? Absolutely not. But if we're in Christ, if we're united to him by faith, these spiritual blessings are ours through the grace of God, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight. Now, the word lavish there, it means to shower. It means to provide with abundance. And think about how incredible that is. In Christ, the grace of God is showered upon us so abundantly that the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. But what if you're not in Christ? See, these blessings only apply to you if you're in Christ. What if you're not? We read earlier in Revelation 20.12 that all the dead will be raised and we will stand before God in judgment. Now, if you stand before God on that day and you're not trusting in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ to save you, if you're not united to him by faith, you will be judged. And not only for the fact that you're a sinner by nature, not only for the fact that your record is stained by all of the sins that you've committed, but even the good deeds that you've done will be judged as filthy rags. But it doesn't have to be that way. I know we spent a lot of time earlier talking about uh, election and predestination, and biblical, biblically speaking, these things are true. But what is also true is that the Bible says in Romans that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ, that means you. That means you. Now, how do these two ideas work together? How is it possible that we're at the same time elected and predestined for salvation, but also responsible to come to Christ of our own will? That's more than we have time to get into today, but I can tell you that the Bible says both of these things are true. They're both true. So if you're here today and you haven't turned to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I urge you, turn to him today and be saved. Trust me when I say that no matter what's going on in your life, whatever problems you may have, no matter what's, what you're going through, no matter what needs you have, you have no greater need than to be saved from the wrath of God. 
And what's amazing to me about this passage in Ephesians is that we see how all three persons of the Godhead work in the salvation of sinners. We've seen so far that we've been chosen by the Father and adopted as sons. We've seen that we've been redeemed by the Son and forgiven our trespasses. And finally, we see here that we've been sealed by the Spirit and guaranteed an inheritance. Look with me at verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, the interesting thing about this verse is the phrase, In him we have obtained an inheritance. And the reason that it's interesting is in the original Greek, that phrase is translated from one Greek word, from a single word. And that word is chloru, which some scholars translate a little differently. Uh, They take it to mean that we have been apportioned as an inheritance. Not that we are, that that we have, uh, we're receiving, going to receive an inheritance. We are the inheritance. And the reason they think this is that it's written in a passive voice, which seems to be, or seems to indicate that we're to be an inheritance rather than the ones who have obtained it. And I think that that reading is actually a little more faithful. It's a more faithful rendering, and I think that for two reasons. Look with me at verse 12 of Ephesians, chapter 1. It says this, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we... His inheritance might be to the praise of his glory. And the second reason we find in verse 18 of this same chapter, so chapter 1, verse 18, it reads, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I want you to turn with me quickly to Psalm 2. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's on page 650. It's Psalm 2. We're going to be reading verses 7 and 8. I want you to read this along with me. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and the nations, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, beloved, I want you to realize something here. I want you to realize that if if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, your adoption, your redemption, your salvation, it's no mere matter of chance. It's not merely some good choice that you decided to make one day even though it was. What I want you to realize is that your salvation was part of God's eternal plan to glorify his son. And when you understand that, when you realize that all of this has been done according to the counsel of God's will, to the praise of his glory, how should that change the way that we live our lives day in and day out? Does it not make you want to just fall on your face and worship our God? Does it not make you want to serve him and his people in loving obedience? Does it not make you grow in your hatred of sin? And and does it make you change the way you look at your brother and sister in Christ? Does it not make you consider the lost and their profound need for the gospel? It should. It should. Do you see that even the trials and difficulties of our lives don't undermine God's ultimate plan? And when we see that, we can't help but praise him.
And finally, we come to the last of these blessings in Christ. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. So we're back in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. See, in ancient times, the way that they would make a document official is they would fold the document in half, they would pour wax on it, and then they would impress a a ring, a signet ring upon it, and that would make the impression in the wax. And that impression indicated that that document came with the authority of the one who owned the ring. The sign was the guarantee that the promises made in the document would be fulfilled as they were promised. And Paul uses that same idea to describe the giving of the Holy Spirit to God's people. See, when you hear the gospel, when you believe and you're saved, we are guaranteed because we've been given the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not just the mark of God that we are his possession. The Spirit's also a deposit guaranteeing the redemption that is to come. I'll never forget the time about 18 years ago we were looking to buy our first house. We came to the development where uh, the house was going to be built. And at the time, it was just a big plot of vacant land. The only thing on the land was this little trailer. And I remember going into the trailer, and and the only thing that they had were drawings and blueprints of what the house was going to look like. There was no model. there There was nothing for us to look at, just this drawing. And if you remember back to the year 2000, what was going on in the real estate market? It was just about going through the roof. Uh, We had actually been to that trailer the week before, and in that week's period of time, the price of the house had gone up by about $10,000. So here we were. The next week there, the price had already gone up, and we had a decision to make. We knew that if, if we really wanted this house, a house that we haven't even seen, if we wanted to lock in the price, which we knew was going to go up, what were we going to have to do? We're going to have to leave a deposit. And that's what we did. We, we left a deposit, and that deposit guaranteed that nine months later, that house would be ours at the price that we agreed upon. See, in the same way, the Spirit is our deposit. He's our guarantee. We know with confidence that the day will come when that inheritance that has been promised to us in Christ will be ours. It's the promise of a kingdom and of righteousness, and of eternal life in the presence of God our King to the praise of his glory. I want to leave you this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's from his book, The Weight of Glory. It reads, and I quote, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. So the question I have for you is this. Are you too easily pleased? 
Are you too easily pleased by fixing your minds on the things of this world? All the things of the world pale in comparison to what we have been given in Christ. I want you to ask, have, have I laid hold of the fact that I've been chosen by the Father and adopted into his family? Have I laid hold of the, of the fact that I've been redeemed and forgiven? Have I laid hold of the fact that I've been sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee of the future glory that I have been promised in Jesus Christ? If you're here today and at this moment you're not trusting in Jesus Christ to save you, but, but instead you're trusting in your own good works, your own good deeds, the fact that you think you're a good person, I can promise you judgment is coming. And it's impossible for any of those things to save you from the wrath of God. Only Christ can do that. So turn to him today and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for these glorious truths. We thank you for these blessings that have been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. So I pray by your Spirit's help that you would help us to realize these things in our moment of weaknesses, weakness, in our moments when we're tempted to sin. Help us to lay hold of these tremendous blessings that we have been given. Oh God, we so need your Spirit to come and be a help to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.